Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. What do you do when you're faced with turning 50 years old? That's a half a century. We all have to go through it. Do you stay the same or do you redefine yourself and move forward in life and create a new life? Or do you just sit back in your favorite comfy chair and learn to knit? I'm your host, Michael Hurst. In this episode, we're going to learn about a unique journey of learning, growing, and changing. This is that thing about being at the crossroads of 50. My guest today is Sheila Stone. She's an author, an academic, a comedian, and a business owner who redefined herself when she turned 50 years old and didn't let life stand still. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You've had quite a journey. Yes, it's been quite the uh, experiences. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Like what... Up until before you were 50, what did you do for a living? What did you do for life? Um, well, I was um, I was a stay-at-home mom for a number of years. Uh, then I went through a divorce and went back to work and found that all of my skills were really out of date. I didn't even know how to turn on a computer, let alone work one. So I had to kind of start from ground zero with that. And I focused on my kids. So I didn't focus on having a career. We had been in a bad situation, so I wanted the rest of their time to be good. Um, we hosted exchange students, uh, had a great time with my kids when they were teenagers, and then they turned around and thanked me by growing up. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's how it usually ends up, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when they, when my youngest, uh, well, when my youngest graduated from high school, we had to move out of the house that we had all lived in, uh, so my ex-husband could move in, and my oldest went off to university. And my youngest and I, deci- I decided to start community college with him. So at that point, I was 48, and I knew that 50 was coming, and that I didn't. Ha- I I knew I didn't want to stay where I was. So I um, I kind of started back to school not because I had a burning desire to have a degree, but because I felt like I didn't have a future. You went back to community college first? I went to community college first. What would you would you study? What did you Well, the one of the first classes I took was uh, cultural anthropology. And I took it. I didn't even know what it was. I took it because it um, it fulfilled a requirement and it fit my schedule. And it really resonated with me. So that was what I majored in was cultural anthropology. That's an interesting subject. I know that you kind of moved on from community college to UCLA. Did you do that right after community college? I did. I did. I um, went hellbent for leather because I I worked at Caltech. I was an (laughs) uh, administrative assistant. So that's only two blocks away from Pasadena uh, Community College. So I was able to go back and forth um, between, you know, so I could take classes. I also took a lot of online classes. And I didn't want, I knew my son was going to be, my youngest was going to be going off to college. And it wasn't that I wanted to follow him. I wanted my own adventures. I didn't want to be a part of his necessarily because I think independence is really important. But I didn't want to stay behind and live the same life I was living. That makes a lot of sense. When you, when you, um, when you went to, uh, it was UCLA, correct? Yes. Uh, what did you choose for your major there? I mean, 
And uh, there's a reason I'm asking for this because I I had to redefine my life as well. It kind of was a uh, an eye opening thing for myself. So I decided to go back to school after quite some time, and and I actually entered university when I was fifty uh, fifty one years old. Mm-hmm. Is when I decided to go back and enter university. So we have something in common. Yeah. Well, I started at 48, and although I had a few certificates in various things, I found that not a single unit transferred. So when I started, I had to start at ground zero. Wow. And that was, you have to make the decision that, okay, I'm a fresh, I'm 48 years old, and I'm a freshman in college. (laughs) And you have to just decide it isn't going to stay this way. If I keep working at it, I will move on um, and just sort of suck it up. So, yeah, it's it's a unique opportunity for individuals that are older to go back to university. But at the same time, it, I mean, like I went to Arizona State University and there's a lot of young kids there. It's a party school. It's known as a party school. Oh, whoa. <laughs> well, see, they didn't invite me to any of those parties because I was the old guy, see? <laughs> so it's like, well, is he going to be the dad type or is he going to be fun, you know? Did you yeah. run into anything like that? Well, I did, actually. Um, and as it turned out, I was the first year I was at UCLA, both of my sons were there as well, which is a whole different spin. Um, I do like to point out that we did not live together. It's a big campus, and they were old enough that they found it more amusing than mortifying. Um, But it did take a while to make friends. I joined the, I was an anthropology major, and I joined the anthropology club that was just starting up. So I got to know people, you know, students outside of school, because when you're in class, You can't exactly, you know, look at someone who's 20 or 21 and say, hey, you want to go have a beer after class when you're like their mother's age. (laughs) They're they're asking you to go buy the beer. Yeah, I I didn't get asked that, but I did get invited to a 21st birthday party. That was eye opening. (laughs) Outstanding. (laughs) It was interesting. Yes. What was your interest in anthropology? Well, I've always been interested in travel. I've always been interested in other cultures. Um, I'm fortunate. I live in Los Angeles. There are lots of other cultures around. It's a very diverse area. Uh, But I grew up in a very white bread area in Florida. And um, when I moved to California, I was just like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. I had my first bagel, my first egg roll, my first real burrito that wasn't from Taco Bell, you know. that's all food, but you know the cultures around them too. Uh, so that was part of what interested me. And then you know you get interested in the the power dynamics of culture, and then the subcultures where we're all part part of different subcultures. You know, like if you like country music, you know a lot about it. If you're uh, a needleworker or, you know, there's always these different subcultures and we're all a part of so many and they each have their own little rules and um, they they are often unwritten and we just sort of pick them up. And help us, help us to understand a little bit more about 
what anthropology is, because some people might have a different view of what anthropology is, but your approach to that is um, is all part of it, isn't it? Well, it is. And I think uh, a lot of times when people think anthropology, they think, you know, studying, um, you know, tribal groups in Papua New Guinea or, uh, you know, sub-Saharan Africa or something. But all cultures are part of anthropology. So wherever you go, if you go to do jury duty, um, that's a subculture. People act a certain way. There are certain rules they follow. Um, I just find that really fascinating. That's really, that's interesting, actually, the way that comes about like that, because most people don't think about that. And I know that that later we're going to talk about later in the show, but we're going to talk about how I'm sure that had a good, had, was a benefit when you started your travel business. Absolutely. Kind of made it a unique approach, I think, because you understood the cultures. And not saying that the other travel services do not, but I think from your perspective, I think it gave you a unique perspective to understanding cultures and helping navigate those with your groups. It gives you a different way of looking at things. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. Well, we can, yeah, so we'll talk. Your journey. So from US, UCLA, did you stay and hang around California or did you find something there? Uh, well, right after I graduated, well, right before I graduated, I had an opportunity because I was in a departmental honors program and I had an opportunity to go to um, to Japan and do research, uh, do my own research on um, middle-aged women, which was fascinating. And that really got me in the, the idea that I wanted to travel. So um, the uh, August after I graduated, I moved to Europe. And I was there most of, mostly a year. Well, that's fascinating about the thing with Japan. It was. <laughs> what was the study purpose for studying middle-aged women? Um, I think what I was doing is comparing and contrasting our stereotypes of Japanese women. You know, that they're, they're very quiet and they're very soft-spoken and they follow a few steps behind their husbands. And boy, that wasn't the case. <laughs> really? Oh, there really wasn't. <laughs> they were well, great. I think, I think media, the, the movies and television kind of kind of foster that old notion. Yes, it's true. It does. And um, also the other cultures, uh, I mean, the J Japanese culture has their own stereotypes about middle-aged women. Uh, they're known as obatarian. And obatarian are sort of like loud, brash, pushy, um, you Sounds know. like my aunt. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so the both stereotypes didn't really jive with the women I met. And of course, I, I interviewed 31 women. That is not, I can't speak for all of, you know, all the women in Japan. But but I got a pretty good idea. And it was, it was fantastic. That's a unique research opportunity. That's amazing, actually. It was great. It was yeah, great. I was lucky because we had hosted students, so I was able to go over there and meet their mothers. Uh, my sons both had been on exchange, so I stayed with their host mothers. So that helped because I had an entree. Was there a language barrier? Thankfully, um, I have friends who are very, very 
incredibly good English speakers who acted as translators. I also went to um, English clubs, and that was fun, uh, you know, sitting and trying to communicate with people who, you know, my Japanese is almost non-existent. So when I say their English wasn't that good, they were still speaking English far better than I was speaking Japanese. But yeah, it was it was great. It was fantastic. That's pretty cool. So (laughs) what made you choose England? Well, I moved. Initially, I went to Ireland for three months. And I was able to do this because there's a program called BUNAC. And don't ask me what it stands for. I never did learn. But if you're a student or you have just graduated, uh, they will help you get a work permit for a limited amount of time. So I was able to go to Ireland for three months with an Irish work permit, and then I followed it up with six months in England. And you could string those two together. So that's what I did. Well, that's pretty unique as well. Um, I didn't know about that. Probably the only person who did it who found out about it from their son. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that would be cool. (laughs) In some circles, it would be cool. Yeah. So what was it like living in England as an American? Uh, It was great. I lived up in North Yorkshire. Uh, I lived in the city of York, which is one of the most beautiful cities on the face of God's earth. It is an ancient city. It's been continuously inhabited for over 2,000 years. Uh, The Romans lived there, the Vikings. It's primarily what's standing now is primarily medieval. But you can walk down streets that were built in the 1300s. Yeah, I think that would be an amazing trip, I believe. Um, Back to your your travel stuff, which we're going to talk about later. The, the the aspect of the walking, again, down something that's from the 1300s, the history, the actual touching, feeling, breathing history, I think would be fascinating. It's like nothing else. It really is. Yeah, it kind of gives it. you a new perspective on uh, what's out there and what, what life can really be experienced as. What made you start stand-up comedy? <laughs> I had, I was 50, let's see, I would have been 52 years old, and I got a really bad case of senioritis, uh, <laughs> which is, it doesn't wear well when you're in your 50s, you you know, and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, here I am, I've, I've done this amazing thing in Japan, I'm about to graduate, I graduated magna cum laude with college and departmental honors. That was really cool. And I knew as soon as I graduated, it wouldn't mean a thing. Really. It, you know, it was a big deal, but it really wasn't. And I thought, oh my gosh, what, what, what do I want to do? What do I want to be when I grow up? And I saw a class for doing stand-up comedy. And I remember I mentioned it to my my youngest son, and I was really hesitant. And I think if he had gone, Mom, gosh, I probably wouldn't have done it. I don't know. But he, instead, he just sort of went, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> now, you, did, you made this decision while you were in England or where you were still here in America? I was still here in America. Um, I took the class literally a 
about a month and a half before I left. And so I did a, the, the class graduation was at the improv. So I got an, ex, I got some experience in doing stand up. Uh, cool. Yeah, it was pretty fun. And, um, so I did, uh, I did it a couple times when I was in Ireland. And then when I went to England, I did it a couple of times there and I kind of kept my hand in for a while. In 2009, I went to the Edinburgh Fe- uh, Free Festival, the Free Fringe, and that was fun. Well, it's interesting because the the British sense of humor is quite a bit different from the American sense of humor. My sense of humor tends to be a little more British, so it works. So it <laughs> and fit right also- in. Yeah, and also I made fun. Made fun isn't the right word, but I poked fun at uh, you know things that Americans do the way we eat, as opposed to the way they eat, and the way we can't say the word toilet because it just sounds so vulgar, and uh, we will find all different ways to say it that isn't saying it, and um, that was that went over. <laughs> I I can see how that would work. I, I can't. I've I've been lucky enough to have uh, my kid's godfather actually is uh, from England, and um, he's he's a resident here now in America. He's a resident, but uh, I learned a lot about British humor because I go over and watch, and he's got DVDs or something, or he's got BBC on, and he's laughing, and I'm just sitting there going, I don't really see that as funny. And he's going, you just have to get used to the British humor, and I'm going, maybe. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see what happens. You earned a master's degree, correct? Yes, I earned that in England. Were you continuing your education journey from the work permit when you got into the master's program there? What motivated you to get a master's program from there? Well, initially, uh, I stayed there and then I, you know, I stayed in England for six months and then I came back um, and I uh, got a job and it looked like it was going to, you know, really lead on to a career. Um, and then a couple of years later, it was the same thing. Nothing had changed. And also the company folded because that was 2008. Big crash. Big crash. And they kind of were a little ahead of the game. And at that point, I thought, well, decided at that point that I would go back to graduate school Um Hope in the hopes that that would, you know, improve my my career chances. Uh, so I applied to four schools in Britain. I was accepted at all of them. I'd like to think it was because I was so brilliant. But let's be honest, you pay three times as much. They really love you to come to their school. So I made a trip in 2007 and visited the schools and chose uh, because I really liked the professor I'd be working with. Um, and that was when I decided to go to, well, I went to Leeds. It was Leeds Metropolitan. It's now Leeds Beckett. And it's in Leeds. Um, Where is Leeds in, in, in England? It is in North Yorkshire. It is in the north. I love the north of England. Must say it's all, all the same area you've been in before. It wasn't that far. It's about uh, an hour by train from York, if that. Uh, so, but I didn't live in Leeds. I didn't want to live in a big city because I have lived in a big city, you know, since 1973. So I uh, moved to a small market town that was about 40 minute, a 40 minute train ride away. And I lived in the little town of Skipton, 
which is God's own country. <laughs> but I visited England once, and I was out there on a business trip, actually. And the person that I was supposed to meet, when I had gone out there, literally, it was a record-breaking snowstorm. It shut down the country. Oh. I mean, completely. The train, the, he couldn't bring the train in because he lived outside of London. He couldn't get the train in because the snow was covering the tracks so much. They're not like here in the States where, you know, they've got, they've got th mechanisms on the front of the train that pushes the snow out of the way. It, it was just crazy. I, I got there. I wandered around the streets. There was hardly anybody out. I, I was from Colorado at the time. So I'm used to the snow. I was used to the like, cold. What's wrong with these people? It's like, this is nothing, right? I mean, it was really, some places were really, really biting cold. I think probably because the, the humidity was in the air, but everything was closed. I went to Buckingham Palace, they're closed. I went to Kensington Palace, closed. I went to Big Ben, closed. I went everywhere I went was closed. Was this in 2009? Uh, it was actually. I remember the snowstorm. I was living there then. So it it kind of um, it changed. Uh, uh, I still want to go back. There were so many things that I wanted to see. There were so many things I would love to have seen and experienced, but I didn't get the opportunity because of oh. the weather. And I thought, you know, Dad Gammon, I live in the snow. Why? Why <laughs> I bring it here? Um, well, you know, they have uh, they have ten snow plows, or at least back then they had ten snow plows for the entire city of London. Because That's it doesn't it, happen. It doesn't happen. Yeah. So, you know, even the guy kept calling me and he said, look, I'm really, really sorry. We finally, we ended up meeting the day before I left. He finally got into town and we were able to have our meeting. But then we went to lunch and he took me to the studios that filmed James Bond. And I'm Ed. a movie fan. And I'm a James Bond fan. I'm not but, so much, but. Uh. but <laughs> well, I got to, we got into the studio. And when we got into the studio, I got a special pass. So, and they normally don't do that. So I got a tour of the studio, which was fantastic. Ooh. And I got to go up and sit at Roger Moore, Sir Roger Moore's desk for a little while, while I did an interview with one of the guys there, uh, one of the production people there. So they said, why don't you sit at uh, Sir Roger Moore's desk? Oh, why don't I? Yes. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was my last experience with, uh, with England, but I want to go back. When you'd want to go, let me know. I'll help you. And again, yeah, I like to talk about that. So, so you got your master's degree. What did you get did. the master's degree in? Uh, the program was called Media and Culture, and basically, it was it was like cultural anthropology, only with a slightly more media slant. Um, anthropologists often are a little bit. They're a little touchy about media, and I find media fascinating because it's such a reflection. Why, why would they be touchy about media, just out of curiosity? You know, I'm not quite sure. I think they, they consider it just not pure enough. But um, I find it fascinating because, you know, I, that is a reflection of the culture. I believe that. My master's degree is in interdisciplinary studies with a focus on digital media and performance. Excellent. Well, I did performance uh, was part of mine as well. I produced a, uh, I produced a uh, stand-up comedy show with all women. There was a, a group of um, 
performances that was already happening in the country called Laughing Cows, which was all women, you know, all women shows. And I wanted to do it with older women. So we called it Laughing Cows Mature Cheddar. <laughs> uh, that's pretty cute. <laughs> it was fun. Uh, it'd be fun too. Yes, it would be. And we're kind of backtracking for a second here, but it made me think about that. You said you had gone to uh, perform at the Edinburgh yes. Festival. Can you tell me about that? Uh, yes. I was um, gathering information. You know, it was part of my doing work for my dissertation. Um, I have a friend who still performs who is, she started performing stand-up when she was 71. Wow. And she is in her middle 80s, and she is still performing. She's amazing. And I went for a week. Uh, I performed with her, but then I also was sort of a general dog's body <laughs> for her. And she just about ran me ragged. She was doing three different shows every day for the entire three weeks without a break. That's fantastic, actually. Yeah, she's pretty incredible. And... uh but I got to perform as well. Now, when I say we were at the Edinburgh Festival, there's the festival, the Edinburgh Festival, there's the Edinburgh Fringe, and then there is the Free Fringe. We were at the Free Fringe. <laughs> that, that's called Edinburgh Festival Adjacent. Adjacent, yes. I, I like to say we were the fluff on the edge of the Free Fringe. Uh, yeah, very small venues. The opening act. You yeah. were the, the opening act before. I was they the came opening in. act. Yep. There you go. Yeah, I'm sure that was a really unique experience. It was great fun. It was wonderful to be in a situation. There were so many performers there. And you know, the it was just a wonderful um uh, atmosphere. The place was packed, and by it, I don't mean the venue we played in. I mean just the entire city is packed full of people, and it was just a wonderful experience. That's another place that my wife and I went to visit. Actually, we want to go to Edinburgh, Scotland, and and you know the whole Scottish area. Actually, her her maiden name is McRobbie. And, okay, um, then yes, yeah, um, and I can help you with that. <laughs> We need to have a very lengthy discussion. We do. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have a list that's about, you know, um, the listeners can't see this, but it's about, I don't know, 15 pages long. Don't we all? Yes. Give or take a few. <laughs> yeah, I decided to say, you know, when you reach a certain age in life and certain things happen to you, you kind of you kind of take a, a look at yourself. And in my opinion, I think you'll agree. You kind of take a look at yourself and say, you know, I think this is an opportunity to move forward and to expand. And you've, you've obviously done that. I think that uh, you've moved forward in a very brilliant way and education-wise, academic-wise, uh, experience-wise, and uh, having a lot of fun while you're doing it. Well, you know, it's all about, I mean, it's such a cliche to say it's all about the journey, but that really, you know, you're not guaranteed you're going to reach you know, your goal. Nobody's guaranteed about anything. And if you don't enjoy the journey, you know, you may miss out. Oh, exactly. So when you, when you left um, university there, 
Did you stay in England or did you come home? I stayed in England for the next six months. Um, but I was having trouble. Uh, I, I could have applied for a uh, kind of remain, uh, leave to remain kind of thing uh, on the strength of having gotten my degree there. But it was pricey. It was hard to get work. I was living in a small town. Um, I couldn't get work without uh, a work permit, uh, which costs money. And um, I thought, you know, I think I better go back to the States. At least I don't need a work permit. So uh, back I came. So you came back. When you get back here, do you move straight, do you, do you move straight to California? I did. Well, no, I, that's wrong. Um, I actually went to Houston, Texas for six months. Um, my oldest son was finishing up his degree. Um, and my car was there. My cats were there. Um, and he said, well, why don't you come? I'm almost done. Just come and stay here. So I went there and I, I worked. Um, I did temp work. And I also helped take care of him because he was getting a PhD, so he was pulling 100-hour weeks. So I was there. I made sure he had food. <laughs> I, you know, I got to go to his, his uh, defense, which was real exciting. Um, cool. And I got to be there you know, for his graduation. And then after that, I left and came back to California. And a month later, he left and came back. Keep it all in the family. Absolutely. There you go. So I know you started a travel business. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Um, when I came back, I could not get arrested. I am, you know, it was 2010. And you know you're talking to a cop, right? Yeah. Or a, be a cop. We can yeah. always find a way. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me tell you, uh, it was it was grim. Um, there were just no jobs to be had. Um, you know, I thought that now that I have, you know, my degrees, I surely will be employable. And I went for over a year just trying to get a job. I was staying with a woman whose, uh, her son had pretty much lived at our house when he was a teenager, when all our, you know, when my boys and, and he were teenagers, um, and his mom's house was being foreclosed on, as happened a lot in California. And she told him, well, she can come and live with me. I mean, at least until the house gets taken back. She had put all of her furniture in. I didn't know her, really. She had put all of her furniture into um, uh, storage. So we were in an empty house in West Covina where I did not know a soul. Um, there were two beds. I borrowed a folding chair from one of my sons and went to Goodwill and bought myself a TV tray so that I could use my computer, but there was no internet. I went to Starbucks during the day, bought my $2 coffee and applied for jobs. Um, and there were times that it literally went weeks without me even hearing back it was like you apply for the job and it just went off into the ether you couldn't call people they didn't want to hear from you you could not follow up in any way um and what i did at night she worked nights so um she slept during the day while i was gone and then was gone at night working and i read library books 
at night. And I lived like that for nine months. Well, you know, it's amazing that, did you think it was the environment or do you think, and by no way do I, am I trying to imply anything in regard to, to age discrimination, but um, do you think it has something to do with your age? Maybe, but I don't know because, you know, if you looked at my resume, because you don't put your age on your resume, and I had just graduated from grad school, uh, only a few years before I had graduated from UCLA, you could have looked at that and gone, okay, she's, you know, I would have looked 30 years younger than I was. Uh, just looking at my resume. Now, obviously, on the few occasions where I had an interview, they figured it out real fast. But uh, yeah, I've been in that boat. Yeah, but I, you know, I don't know if that I, there just wasn't much. I mean, I got turned down by Starbucks. I got turned down by Trader Joe's. Just difficult. Yeah, our youngest daughter in this pandemic, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, but. Um, in this pandemic, uh, all three, we have, we have two daughters, one of them is married. So we call our son-in-law, one of our kids, um, all three of them had lost positions here because of the pandemic. And, um, our youngest daughter, we had just moved to Tennessee a year and a half previously. And she, their company laid off everybody because they're a marketing and advertising firm for health clubs and for the health industry, which um, from that perspective, not from a pharmaceutical or medical perspective, but from from like uh, health clubs and fitness clubs and, you know, um, like uh, juice bars and things like this. So they lost, when they shut down, they obviously weren't buying advertisement. Right. If they weren't buying advertisement, they couldn't use Nicole. So it took her... She was applying from March when she got laid off um, up until recently when she finally got a position. But we had to move her, what, 2,400 miles from Tennessee to California where she finally got a position. Recently, she got a position. She was putting in like 10 applications a week for anything oh, yeah. and everything. And she couldn't yeah. get anything to call, anybody to call her back. You know, and she got a couple of calls from California that said, yeah, we could use you here. And, um, you know, she interviewed and luckily they took her, but it was a tough journey. Oh, so, yeah. And that, so that's the other spectrum because she is a young lady. She's under 30 years old and she does have a degree, but she's still under 30 years old. So I think that in, especially back in the time that this took place for you and like now in this pandemic, it creates an environment for a lot of people, there's there's 35 million people or more out of work at the present yeah. time. And, and it's due to what's going on right now. And I don't think it's ever going to change, unfortunately. It's uh, pretty it, brutal. It, it's going to, I won't say ever change. I think it's going to change the way we do business. I because, think it already is doing it. Yeah. My youngest son just got a different job. Um, he was He's in medical tech, but he's he's like an art director. So, you know. Um, and he just got a new job, and his new job is totally work from home. That's, but that's positive in some ways. Oh yeah, I mean, it's not a complaint, but yeah. uh, it's definitely changed. Changed I think things are changing as far as what we consider. It used to be if you worked from home, it was a little bit 
Yeah, is that a real job? And or the elite, the ones yes. that are way up top, and they're going, I'm going to work from home. And you go, okay, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, my wife, luckily, has been home working from home. She works for the state, but she's been at home working from home. And she's in um, the education portion of that. So they've had to redefine how they do Oh, wow. Yeah. How they teach classes and how they present classes and how they get certification for those classes because it changed the system. It just changed it, completely changed it. And like that. Yes, just like that. People had to learn, learn new processes, learn from the bottom up, basically. And learn them on the fly and fast. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And we don't complain. Uh, we have a puppy dog, Charlie, we've we've adopted. Um, he doesn't complain. He's going, hey, she's home. Thanks. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he used to spend all day with me, see? And, and now it's like, where's the dog? <laughs> He's in there with her. <laughs> My um, oldest son works for <clears throat> Jet Propulsion Lab. He's a NASA scientist. And he was doing a lot. Now he's going back into his his lab uh, for part of the time. But you know he's he's an experimentalist. So he was like, you know, I'm limited yeah. as to what I can do at home. <laughs> like, pardon, Nick, you sent a notice to your neighbors. Pardon me, I've got to test a jet engine. So if you hear anything, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it. It's it's all good. <laughs> so, what motivated you to start a travel business? Um, well, I did get a job um, eventually at UCLA, interestingly, and then they decided they were paying me too much. So a couple of uh, three days before I would have uh, come off of um, uh, probation, they let me go. Um, and they said, you know, it has nothing to do with how you're doing your work. It's like, I'm sorry, that doesn't make me feel any better. <laughs> uh, and then I got another, uh, I, that was when I decided to start thinking about starting a business. Then I got a temp job, which turned permanent right away. And I was going, well, okay, I can, I, you know, I can't afford to turn down work. I stayed with that. And then they changed and decided they were paying me too much. And they let me go. Same thing. You know, it's not anything about the way you're doing your work. It's just, this is what we have to do. And at that point, I decided, you know, working for myself cannot be any flakier than this. So, um, yeah, it's hard to it. fire yourself. It is. You know, I have the good sense to not fire me or fire it. Fire. It wasn't firing. It was uh, laying off. But laid off. Yes. Same. You know, same thing. Perma- you no job. <laughs> permanently laid off means permanently laid off. It's right. You Whether. Right. And no income. So uh, that was when I decided uh, to start my business. And And, I love it. And I'm assuming you chose travel because cultural anthropology played an effect on that. It did. And I'm a travel buff. And I like people. And, you know, I wasn't doing stand-up comedy anymore. But this is kind of even better because you have an audience that can't get away. (laughs) Put them all on a bus and say, you lock the doors. <laughs> tell me how it works. Tell me, tell me a bit about that. I'm kind of interested. My, my tours are very small. I don't want to be responsible for 40 people. 
and they're going to only appeal to people who that they appeal to, and that's fine. The groups are like eight people or less, and we travel by public transportation. We stay in small hotels where I try to keep the money in the community as much as I can. And I know a lot of people do that when they travel like to third world countries and stuff. But, you know, even if you're traveling to London, which is a very rich, expensive city, the people that have small hotels, they're still struggling and they still need people to stay there. So if someone wants to travel, if they want to have their bags taken care of, if they want to to travel, you know, in luxury, I'm probably not a good fit. But if you want to go there, you want to learn the history and the background of what you see, you want to meet local people to find out about their lives, um, then I'm your gal. That's the best part of travel, I think, to me and my wife. That's the best part of travel. The people you, know, you meet are the so best part. The people you meet in the unique places that we can visit and experience. Yes. And, you know, if you're in a big, my, I try to keep my tours reasonably priced um, because usually small tours are very, very high end and very expensive. I don't want that. But they're not budget tours either. They're kind of mid range. But the thing is, if you're in a big group, if you're in a big bus, you know, 40 people in a bus, when you stop, they have to stop at a place where you can, they, that they can accommodate feeding, say, if you're stopping for lunch. It has to be a place where they can com accommodate feeding 40 people. It, you can only go places that are big enough to accommodate having 40 people come in. You may get, quote, cultural experiences but they're usually sort of pre-digested. You know, it's a, a place where you go and they put on a show or they do a demonstration for you. And quite frequently, the owner of the bus or the tour company gets a kickback. That's not what I wanted to do. So uh, we go to little places and see really interesting, cool things like how chocolate is made. Cool. Yes. Very, very cool. <laughs> what, what's the name of your business? Um, I have actually two businesses because they don't overlap very well. But the first one I started was Britain Your Way Tours. So obviously that one was in Britain. But then I wanted to expand. And then I also wanted to do like women-only tours. So my other company is Women Sharing Cultures. And that's yeah. cultures plural. And that's an interesting perspective. Why, why just women? Um, you know, the thing is, no offense to your manliness, <laughs> but um, if you get a group of women together, and I've had this happen on more than one occasion, where I brought a group of local women and my tour women, and we had a potluck, and we sat down and immediately, everyone was sharing their lives. Everyone was talking about, you know, how they were feeling. One of the women was telling us about the first time she experienced racism. Um, and I did not engineer that. I just put them together and let them have at it. And um, that is the kind of thing that seems to work better with women. 
Yeah, I think I think women are more open to um, having uh, 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 a conversation, basically, and learning about other people and other things and common experiences. Men tend to shut themselves off. They don't want to, I don't want to get to know that. I mean, I'm not this way, but, you know, I, I don't want to get to know that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to talk to anybody. Why should I tell somebody something so personal? Right. I don't want them to know that because it makes me look you know, weak or it makes me look weird or they're, they're more self-conscious. So I think that's a brilliant idea you have, actually. It works. It, it works really well so to far. The, well, so far. <laughs> so far. Well, yeah, I think I'm sure that between both of them, you're the one, the, the one for Britain. Um, what do you do there? Um, I try to do, uh, I do one budget tour which is called Frugal and Fun, and that's London and Liverpool. And that's just a week long. So that is the budget tour. And that's the one that's more, uh, you know, we're going to go to Westminster Abbey. We're going to go to Greenwich. We're going to go to uh, Kensington Palace, that kind of thing. Um, But the other ones tend to be kind of like I've done Harry Potter tours. I've done garden tours. I've done, um, I did a foodie tour in Scotland, which was really fun. Um, And it it might be like an area like uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow or um, the north part of England. Um, So they tend to be a little more either geographically located or... um, like for a special interest like Harry Potter or, um, or gardens or things along those lines. So they're a little bit different, but I still try to stay in the smaller hotels, eat at the smaller restaurants, travel by public transportation because they have good tra- public transportation. <laughs> I think it's a positive thing, actually. I, I, uh, how has the pandemic changed all that? <laughs> it pretty much stopped everything. At this point, basically, I actually did do a tour in um, the beginning of March in New Orleans and uh, the Bayou country. Uh, That was my second tour there. It was fantastic. We were just starting to hear some things about this pandemic thing. Right from that tour, I left and went to visit my son's in-laws in D.C. And during that week... That was when it really became apparent that things were were unbelievably not good. Um, I was supposed to leave to go to Ireland to do research for several weeks in Ireland and then spend time in England and then visit Spain, preparing for a tour in September. And two days before I was supposed to leave, I came home. And I've been here ever since. Well, that's crazy. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I think as we said earlier, this um, coronavirus slash COVID nineteen has changed the way life takes place now, and I, I believe that it really it has continued to change and evolve to something different. But hopefully, soon people can get back to um, to some state of normalcy. And we, I hope so. Um, I canceled everything for this year. Uh, I did that ages ago. It was like, okay, this is not going to happen. Um, And I don't know about next year. Uh, Yeah, because I think the the European Union has pretty much shut 
the we U.S. business from traveling. <laughs> they, I, I, every year I, in September, I go to Spain and volunteer at an English school, which is one of my favorite parts of the year. And um, before they turned us down, I had decided that this was not a good idea. So I had decided not to go. But, you know, it's it's different to make the decision yourself <laughs> as to being told, you know, you're not welcome. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and I understand exactly. why. I, I'm not, that's not a complaint. But, um, yeah, it's a little bit like, oh. I think it's like the first time in history we've been uh, banned from traveling to foreign countries. Yeah, yeah. It's, ama- it's just amazing. It blows me away. Um, but you have taken some of that energy, and uh, you write books. You're an author. I do. I do. I had written one book, one published book called How to London, um, and I have decided to uh, write some other books because – well, because I can't travel, <laughs> and i i had um, I had some um, some manuscripts I had written before that you know back in the day, if you couldn't get a big publisher interested in your books, you end you up in with, a drawer. Yeah, you know, you end up with manuscripts sitting in a drawer. Well, I have manuscripts, and I'm going through them. And I'm dividing them into what I call tiny books. So you can get things published on Amazon. There are small books, and they they are not expensive. And um, so I'm dividing up my initial How to London book into three. I'm expanding it and dividing it into three books, three small books. I'm working on one on Japan. Um, I'm in the process of dividing a book I wrote about single parenting and another one called Boomer Bloomer, A Guide for Women Who's Still on the Wrong Side of the Glass Ceiling. <laughs> That's a brilliant name. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Very catchy. Makes you want to open the cover, see? That's the plan. So your your books to um, the for, for the London and for England, Great Britain, and for um, Japan and so forth that you're breaking up. Those are, are those travel related. The well, of course, uh, the London books are, uh, the Japan books are, and I'm not sure if I'm going to be doing any other travel books. But the um, the Boomer Bloomer book is just more of kind of like what we've been talking about today and talking about my own journey, but also talking about the fact that I'm not superwoman. I'm just an ordinary person who decided that I realized that this isn't a dress rehearsal, that this is it. This is our lot, you know, my life and that I had to do something and if I couldn't figure out exactly what to do, I'd just keep blundering around until I could. And um, that's kind of what the point of that book is, is not that you're never too old, because I really, really hate that phrase. Because someday, if we get lucky enough to live long enough, we will be too old. But if you're reading this and you're hearing this, you're not too old yet. That works. I was going to ask you, what advice can you give to someone at who's standing at the crossroads of 50? You're not, don't 
let people identify you or restrict you by your age. You know, if you just like when I went back to school, I was a freshman at 48. I had to take three math classes to get to the math class I needed to take to transfer. If you're willing to put in the work, and sometimes it is work, but if you're willing to put in the work, you can do things. If you can't do, say, you always wanted to be, say, a ballet dancer, well, obviously, if you're 50, you're not going to be able to do that. You can still do the things that you enjoy. You can take a dance class. You can watch ballet. You do what you have to do to make yourself happy. Um, Not at the expense of others, but, you know, sometimes we have to realize that these people that we are um, taking, taking care of, uh, it works really well for them, but it comes a point where it doesn't work for us and you're not really doing them any favors by um, sacrificing yourself for them. You know, sometimes you have to, like if you have a child that has, um, you know, some disability or, you know, your aged parents or something. But a lot of times you've got someone who is just real happy to have you continue to take care of them because it's easier for them. Uh, That's excellent words of wisdom. Thank you. I thought about them quite a bit. (laughs) Excellent words of wisdom. How can somebody find out more about you, your travel services, and your books? Um, You can follow me on Facebook, which is um, Women Sharing Cultures. Um, You can also look at my website, which right now it basically has things saying, these are the tours we want to give, (laughs) maybe next year. Um, So that would be also uh, womensharingcultures.com. Um, anyone can email me at toursbysheila at gmail.com. And um, I would be delighted to answer any questions or to, you know, help anybody if they need it. I appreciate that. And I'll provide links to all of those things in the show notes for you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And the books will, when they are available, they will be up on the uh, the Facebook. I'm also on Instagram, again, Women Sharing Cultures. So, yeah, that would be amazing. Well, I, Sheila, I appreciate you sharing your journey with us. I learned a few things myself, and I'm hoping that others out there have learned something as well. And it gives them an opportunity to not stand still to move forward. There's always light at the end of the tunnel. So, Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your experience, and your journey. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go, have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.